First Chronicles 26. We have to keep in mind the scope of the service of worship that will be offered and maintained at the temple that Solomon will build. Now this is David making all the plans. I mean, all of the plans, uh, you think of, well, we'll see even more, but he's already made all of these plans, the divisions of the priesthood, the, divi- the, the, the divisions of the uh, musicians, everything, all of the material is bought, paid for, the, the land has already been secured and this part of First Chronicles keeps going with how David the king completely arranges everything. He thought of everything. Uh, not all of this, gatekeepers for example, not all of this is in the law of Moses. The, the tabernacle had certain material it was made of and then it had a, bronze, a brass, a bronze altar. And then there was an area inside. And then you go to the holy place and the holy of holies and all that. But by the time David becomes king, the population of Israel would be probably tens of millions of people. Certain things were required by the law. So that means that males 30 years old and older had to come at certain times of the year. They had to. Most of them would have brought their families, I'm sure. Then there's just the ongoing regular worship, service of worship. To make your offerings, your sacrifices. And the priests had to be ready for this. The continual slaughter of animals, the, uh, the protocol that had to be followed with everything and the ones who would do it. And they had to have been appointed, of course, by Yahweh through Moses in the law. And they would have already been trained. They already have their instructions and that's how they would be trained. They'd be raised uh, in their Levitical family. Uh, to be the priesthood. But until now, at the place called Shiloh, there was the tabernacle, the temporary place until they could figure out what to do. And David, of course, took those matters into his hands. He couldn't build the temple, but he could make all of the arrangements and just come right up to the building of it. And it would be Solomon who would build it. So if you think about this, Thousands of people making their way. When I was, oh man, I was, I guess, 19 years old. My first trip to the Holy Land, and we made a trip to Athens, Greece. And we scaled the mountain uh, of Areopagus, which is where Paul, Mars Hill, where Paul preached. Just, just across the way was the Parthenon. It was broader, but not quite as high as Mars Hill from my perspective. But the Parthenon, even though it's in ruins, was still a grand looking building. And the roads that led to the Parthenon still existed in the 
way they were built. It wasn't, I don't guess it was the same pavement or whatever. But our guide would tell us how on Mars Hill, someone could look over and see lines of people for miles long waiting to come into and pass through this temple. Um, Diana, the, the, the great temple there. And as I looked across there, and, I, and I, I've thought about it many times since, I wonder what kind of lines there were and what kind of constant travel there was from worshipers, not, not on the required times, but just during the normal course of a week or a month or whatever, and of those tens of millions of Israelites being sensitive, worshipers would feel the necessity to make their way uh, to make some kind of, of sacrifice uh, that was required for various reasons in the course of their lives. What kind of crowds? We well, see... Obviously, David had a gift as the king, a gift of organization and administration, and he had forethought for all that might could happen, and so he's making arrangements. And those arrangements were still in place when Jesus, although it's not the same temple, but when Jesus came and, uh, and taught the people in the temple, in uh, the temple that Herod had built, uh, still the same organization and administration would have been in place. It would have been that which obviously the Lord, the Spirit of God had led David uh, to organize. So we're moving on now from the musicians, which was in the last chapter. And this just keeps going. This is not really... It's, it's not really a chapter, although it is a chapter division, but it's a division of the next group. But the train of thought of how it's being organized is an unbroken thought. So we just keep going in the way uh, that we're going. And we're going to, when I get, I'm going to read through this mostly. I may make a comment or two, but then I have some things that I've, some thoughts that I've gathered at the end of this um, for us to think about. And, and some of it maybe will make certain things in the Gospels a little clearer for us or give us, uh, give us some thoughts maybe that we haven't had before. So moving on, here are the gatekeepers or the gate sentries. These guys are guards. They're like a police force. Of the divisions of the gate sentries of the Korahites, Meshelemiah, the son of Korah, of the sons of Asaph, and the sons of Meshelemiah, Zechariah, the firstborn, Jediah, the second, Zebadiah, the third, Jathniel, the fourth, Elam, the fifth, Jehohanan, the sixth, Eljehoenai, the seventh, of the sons of Obed-Edom, Shemaah, the firstborn, the second, Joah, the third, Sachar, the fourth, and Nethanah, the fifth. Let me go back here and... Uh, Take note again. I've got to have it underlined, but I, I should have said something a little more about it. These were gate sentries. They had a serious responsibility. You had to be you had to be the right person 
that is, of the, tri- of, of the nation of Israel. And you had to be of the right mind to get into the temple. The sentries, the gatekeepers, would have the authority to keep you out if, if something seemed funny, all right? Now we keep going from there. Uh, where did I get to? Nothing else. Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Polithi the eighth, and Elohim had blessed him. And to Shemal, his son, to his son were born sons who ruled through their father's house, for they were mighty warriors. So these guys are skilled in combat. They're very serious. These gate sentries, when they were first established, they were very, very serious men. The sons of Shemaiah, Othni, and Raphael, and Obed, Elzabad, his brethren, mighty warriors, Elihu, and Simachia. And these are the sons of Obed-Edom. They are, they are valiant men. It's supposed to be they are. And I, I, somehow I got so fast. With strength for service and their sons. I don't know how they got mixed up. And their brethren, 62 to Obed-Edom. And the sons of Meshelimiah. Meshelimiah. And brethren, valiant men, 18. The sons of Hossa. The sons of Merari, Shimri, the chief, because although he was not the firstborn, his father made him the chief. Helkiah, the second. Tobaliah, the third. Zechariah, the fourth. And all the sons, brethren of Hosa, 13. To these were the divisions of the gate sentries, according to the chiefs of the men, watches corresponding to their brethren to serve in the house of Yahweh. So, like the musicians and like the Levitical priesthood, they served in watches. To be, be, be a, a division of, uh, of the watches. So that if you're a gate sentry or something else, you would only serve a length of time. And then, according to the size of the tribe and the, the, the families that headed up this particular ministry... You may not have to serve again. You know, you serve your time and then you may not have to come back. And those Levites would live in the Levitical cities, the cities of the Levites that were scattered around. They cast lots, the small like the great, to their father's houses for each gate. The lot to the east, that is eastern gate, fell to Shalemiah and Zechariah, his son, a prudent counselor, cast lots and his lot came out to the north. Obed-Edom to the south and to his sons, the house of Asupim, to Shupim and to Hoseth to the west with the Shelecheth gate on the ascending highway, a watch corresponding to a watch. To the east, the Levites were six. To the north, every day four. To the south, every day four. And to the Asupim, two each. Toward the outside, to the west, four to the highway, two toward the outside. These are the divisions of the gate sentries of the sons of the Korahites and of the sons of Merari. So these are, these are their divisions of service. And within those families, those who descended from those families, as time would pass, would be the ones who would be assigned to where these families initially, initially were assigned and how they were assigned. And so the lots would be cast, perhaps every generation. But anyway, everybody knew it was an organized thing. The next group are, 
are the treasurers. Let me look back here. Well, I know I won't. I'll just keep going. And the Levites, Ahia, over the treasuries of the house of Elohim and to the treasuries of the hallowed things. Okay, let me stop right there. The treasurers had a twofold responsibility, and it all had to do with valuable things. First, the treasuries of the offerings that would be brought in. The other thing, the treasuries of the hallowed things, which would be like a museum. Every time, for example, we'll see this in the course of this passage. Every time that uh, Israel went to war under David or whatever, there would be things captured from those armies and they would be like treasures of grace, the grace of God who delivered us from this army. And there would be treasures from those armies and those nations brought and they would be, they would be uh, uh, on display as, as an illustration of God's power and God's grace for his people. So that's, they would, they would look over the treasuries and the museum. I'm going to call it a museum. The sons of Ladan, the sons of the uh, Gershonites, to Ladan, the chiefs of the father's houses, to Ladan, the Gershonite, Jehieli. The sons of Jehieli, Zetam, and Joel, his brother, over the treasures, treasuries of the house of Yahweh. To the Amramites, to the Izharites, to the Hebronites, to the Zeolites, and Shabuel, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, was the ruler over the treasuries. And his brethren of Eliezer, Rehabiah, and his son Isaiah, his son, and Joram, his son, and Zikri, his son, and Shelmolet, his son, that is Shelomit, and his brethren, who were over all of the treasuries of the hallowed things, the museum pieces, that King David and the chiefs of the fathers of the princes of the thousands and the hundreds and the generals of the army had hallowed. So you see what that verse says. That verse says that when they, when they won a war, it was hard fought, but David, for example, always prayed to Yahweh and Yahweh said, I'll give you the victory, go for it. They captured the most valuable things and brought them back and placed them in this museum uh, that would be in the temple. And of course, it illustrated how Yahweh had given them the victory over these various armies and nations. From the wars and from the spoils, they hallowed to strengthen the house of Yahweh. And all that Samuel the seer and Saul the son of Kish and Abner the son of Ner and Roab the son of Zeruiah had hallowed, all that was hallowed was in the hands of Shalomit and his brethren. So they had a, they had a, a very large responsibility. And then the officers, what, what are called the officers and the judges, of the, the Isharites, Kananiah and his sons to the outside work over Israel of the officers and the judges. Now these were like, these would be like magistrates. Uh, they worked, they had to know the law of Moses, of course. They had to know the Torah and they maintained order and uh, according to the words that are used could even, could even have powers of arrest these guys uh, if, if something 
is not being done according to the Torah. Of the Hebronites, Shabiah and his brethren, valiant men, 1,700, over the appointment of Israel from the side of the Jordan to the west, to all the work of Yahweh and to the service of the king. Of the Hebronites, Eriah, the chief of the Hebronites, to his generations, to the fathers in the 40th year of David's reign, they were inquired of, and there were found among them mighty warriors in Jazir Gilead, and his brethren, valiant men, who were 2,700, the chiefs of the fathers' houses, and King David appointed them over the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, for every matter of Elohim and the matter of the king. Now, they were on the other side of the river. You may remember that. They, were, they didn't come all the way over into the land, but they still were under the rule of David and under the rule of, of the Torah, uh, the law. So these were like, I don't know, maybe like a sheriff or something. I don't know. They had, they, they had, they had positions like, uh, like magistrates, like judges and uh, law enforcement, if you will. So let's think about this. And I just want to reflect on a few thoughts. The Levitical group of gatekeepers or gate centuries is considered here in this portion that we looked at. Now, their divisions are not chronological, but they're topographical. That is, they were assigned to four gates of the temple and other areas where security was deemed to be necessary. This is because on any given day, they could have literally thousands of worshipers to come into the temple once it's built. Their role as security police did not concern only theft from the temple area, Although the reference to the storehouse in verses 15 and 17 indicates that this was a concern that was not irrelevant. But according to 2 Chronicles 23 and verse 19, the purpose of their work was that no one who was in any way unclean should enter. So they kept order in the temple. There is evidence in the Old Testament that the temple gates were spiritual checkpoints. If we go to Psalm 15, we'll have evidence of this. It represents an interchange between a pilgrim and one who is evidently one of the centuries of the gate as to God's standards for the one who wanted to come and worship. There is listed a series of moral and social requirements and then a promise of blessing. So the privileges of worship and blessing depend on a prior commitment to good neighborliness. This interchange attested in Psalm 15 also occurs uh, in a little shorter form in Psalm 24 and, uh, and still another shorter part in Psalm 118, while Isaiah 33 echoes this, uh, same, this, this convention, this commitment in a prophetic message. So there's more than one place in the Bible that speaks of, of the authority of the gate centuries. Uh, it does something. You had, to, you had to, according to the gate century, who himself would have known the Torah, you had to have, you had to have been up to standard on a series of moral and social requirements, or you wouldn't you wouldn't come in. Think about that. Um, then the religious condemnation of Isaiah one seems to imply that in the day of Isaiah, this moral security check became rather. Uh, mechanical. It, it, it lost its importance by the time of Isaiah. Of course, this is a reflection of the sinful attitude of the people of the day. 
And as a matter of fact, it was so overlooked that it might not have even been done at all. That's an interesting thing to think about. A nation blessed by God, as it moves forward in time, for whatever reason, those who are in authority seem to lose their focus on the requirements of moral and social codes that the people of God would be expected to follow. And so it gets to the point where it didn't even make any difference to the gate centuries anymore. Something that was so important in the time here of First Chronicles when it first started happening just lost its importance. It's like, well, we're not going to, I know that's the law, but we're not going to enforce that law. You know, we're not, we're just not going to do that. Uh, so it, it gives you a, uh, it gives you an idea of the progression of sin within a society. A blind eye apparently was being turned to what I would call low social standards. And so coming in the name of God, the prophet cried out, I cannot endure a combination of iniquity and the sacred meeting. So he challenges them to cease to do evil and learn to do good. From heaven, God says, I can't have this mixture of, of uh, iniquity and yet in that iniquity coming in to a sacred meeting and acting like that you're worshiping, God couldn't endure that. Of course, from Isaiah, it would spiral down and within a few decades, um, the nation was lost. This is interesting too. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus apparently made use of this custom in Matthew 5. To any who brought an offering in worship, he counseled, now this is Jesus, he counseled self-examination as to how that person had been treating others. If the answer was a negative answer, the offering was not to be completed. Now this is what Jesus said. The offering was not to be completed until the matter had been put right. So this would have, should have been a matter for gatekeepers, gate centuries. Uh, and this is something that Jesus says is you're bringing an offering, but is your heart right? You're coming in here to worship, but is your heart right? Have you, have you mistreated somebody? If you, if you, have, you have to settle this before you can be allowed to come in here and worship. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so the offering the, the worshiper was bringing was not to be completed until the matter had been settled. Uh, and a, a striking word picture is painted of an empty altar and an offering lying beside it with the worshiper conspicuous by his absence. So Jesus' directive was this, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So the Lord, essentially Jesus was doing the work of a gate sentry, a gatekeeper, and he commended his standards to his disciples as well. And then of course the principle is broadened even further in 1 John 4 where John says, he who does not love his brother, how can he love God? How can you come in here and worship if you don't have real love for God? Now, it's a miscellaneous group of Levites that are mentioned in chapter 23, officers and, or verse, I'm sorry, uh, that are mentioned called officers and judges. That was earlier. And that term is now, I, I said it's unpacked. It's that term that was, that was mentioned briefly 
uh, three chapters earlier, now is, is defined more clearly in verses 20 through 32 that we just read. Uh, its first ingredient is the treasurers. There were two types, and I mentioned this, the treasury of money and the treasury of dedicated things. I called it museum. Sort of a combined bank and a museum. Ancient temples regularly contained valuable objects and accumulated them over the centuries, and the temple in Jerusalem was no exception. A tour of these treasuries would have provided a history lesson. They contained spoils of war that were dedicated to maintain the house of the Lord. And of course, David contributed heavily to such a treasury, as mentioned in chapter 18. And there was an understandable tendency not to sell these spoils, but to preserve them as trophies of the grace of God extended his people. Now, the other treasuries, those of the house of God, were the busy, bustling offerings that were brought in every day. Ezra 8 we have a glimpse of the activity there on a special day when Ezra arrived from Babylonia with a consignment of money and vessels. It's noticeable that a tight security system was in force before and during the journey. That's to be read in Ezra uh, at chapter 8. And at the end of the journey, you had to check up. Nothing could be missing. Good care had to be taken of God's property not least so that it could keep the faith, that the faith of the donors would be kept. And of course, as who they were, would purified before the Lord. So here are the officials and judges proper. Certain Levites evidently seconded for judicial work in Israel as magistrates and legal executives. This work may have been an extension of the administration of the Levitical cities since Jazer, that's mentioned in verse 31, was one such city. So it made use of an expertise not mentioned here, but referred to in 2 Chronicles 17, and God willing, we'll get there someday, that he had to have an expert knowledge of the Torah. I have, I've mentioned that already. They couldn't just randomly execute pieces of justice. It had to come uh, from the Torah. And that violation would be would be attended to by the officials and the judges in the judicial work. Now that, that particular work is not necessarily limited just to the area around the temple. As it says here, it, it, Levitical cities, since they were of the Levites, it seems that if you had a problem as an Israelite, and you weren't near the temple, but you were near Levitical city. Apparently, there would be some within those Levitical cities who were not on duty in the temple, but still were of the officials and judges who could be called on and they could be put into action uh, to make sure that whatever seems to be wrong uh, would be made right. Made right. So you get an idea then of the extension of the importance well, of the importance of the extended work of the temple, uh, the influence of the temple and the Levites and their jobs included several different kinds of duties, administration and finance and uh, police force and judges and magistrates and, and so forth. So that there was uh, 
there was a, a prevalence of, of law and order throughout the land. It's not like you could live in some part of the land several hundred miles away from the temple and just get away with anything. That wasn't the way it was. And David saw to it that way as, as well. And as the king, he knew exactly how to do this. Well, we're going to, we'll stop there and uh, God willing, we'll pick it up next time and we'll have our deacon prayer time.